The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy, sustainably powering the food and drink sectors. FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. Hello and welcome to Passionate About Food and Drink, the FDF podcast. I'm Ian Wright. I'm the chief executive of uh, FDF. And today I'm joined for the first time by our very esteemed affiliate member, uh, Charles Hogg of Unsworth. Charles, welcome to the podcast. No, thank you for having me in and sort of excited to be sharing some snippets with the listeners here today. Uh, I'm sure they're going to be extremely uh, beguiled by what you've got to say because the the partnership that we're beginning to establish is very, very exciting. Tell us, Charles, a bit about Unsworth. I'm not sure all our listeners will be completely familiar with it. No, and it's um, so Unsworth are a second generation family business that is specialising in um, customs clearances across the EU border. And what that really means is that um, we are um, really focusing on making sure that uh, FDF members are able to continue to trade like they did before uh, with the EU. And also in terms of removing the barriers that caused friction previously. And you've got to remember that uh, by creating this new customs border, an awful lot of the FDF members really have been uh, disadvantaged than they were uh, shipping uh, this time last year. And so our job or our mission has been to really reinstate the um, that, reinstate where they were and to remove all the barriers and create this uh, level playing field again. Now, you said that Unsworth was uh, a family business. Many of our member companies are family businesses, so they'll have a lot in common. Um, how many of the family are in the business and what prompted it being started? So they've got a bit of background on, yeah, on your sure. history. Yeah, sure. So it was started actually by my mum and dad um, some 45, uh, 47 years ago. And um, um, in terms of their sort of spirits, they are always uh, parents that believe in innovation. And they actually started the business um, quite uniquely just pre the containerization era, just as that was taking off. And in terms of where we've been able to take it over the last sort of 47 years, in the last sort of 15 years, the stewardship has been with myself and my co-director, Richard, who is my brother. And we've really been guiding the uh, business to where it is today. And we're probably in the realms of a business that turns over roughly uh, 60 million uh, pounds and probably employ just under 120 people here in the UK. So quite a substantial business, but I'm sure that that the uh, partnership and combination of FDF members with Unsworth can be very productive for both sides. Um, and let's get down to how that's going to work. Six months on from uh, Brexit and with the uh, whole debate going on about the, the import and export uh, documentation that will or won't be allowed. Where are we, do you think, in, in this process? Are we beginning to see some light? And, and what lessons have been learnt from the experience of the last 12, 18 months? I think Brexit was something on the horizon that we were all feeling like we had planned well for, whereas COVID kind of struck us and we weren't really ready for it. If we take a look at you know Brexit and where we are 
uh, sort of eight, nine months down the line since um, since the borders were introduced, especially for the GB to EU flows, I see a level of understanding that has certainly returned. I see a lot of the um, members that we're engaging with are sort of 60% of the way there towards true trading success, but they're still getting hiccups that cause them extra costs and extra delays. And also they're finding that their customers based in the EU are not treating them as favourably to buy from as they did pre-Brexit because there have been onward customs controls for their buyers of their goods in the EU, making them slightly less appealing than the same uh, counterparts within the EU member states. So from my side, it's really been about how do we simplify the process for um, your members in the UK to continue to sell almost pre-Brexit and also to make sure that they're as appealing to those um, uh, buyers of their products within the EU. And we've got to remember that a lot of the FDF members are quite boutique in their nature. They could be quite a small niche chicken uh, cheese producer or a small sausage producer. They're not all the multinationals who have armies of consultants that are really able to um, barrage their shipments through the, the borders. And one of the bits that we've really found is they've not necessarily had the right level of advice, um, which is something we're aiming to correct with our engagement program at the moment. And the second bit that we're finding exceptionally useful is that the members want to come out and see what happens at the, the new Calais border and how the process works and walk through it with us. So we're actually taking a whole coach load of FDFM members, I think nearly 50 have signed up so far, um, on a tour of Calais port uh, with the uh, port authority, the customs and the vets to really improve that understanding. Because the more free-flowing that border becomes, the less delays, and also you're not holding up my customers' traffic with anything that ensues. On the import side, we're quite aware that the UK government are postponing certain control measures, which has been um, um, welcomed by certain parts of the trade. However, from my side, I'm forever pained when we kick something down the line and we're kind of ready for something. And actually for me and many of my customers that I'm working with, it actually adds extra cost because they feel they've got to uh, down um, downstand some of the teams to bring them up back into play come January and July. So ultimately, it's a very confusing uh, nine months and actually having access to the right information at the right time has been very challenging and it's something we with the FDF are looking to try and change around. So our general position is is that about somewhere between 20 and 40 percent of our members export or did export before the uh, before the difficulties of of the turn of the year but very many more of our members import um, up to 90% will import some form of ingredient, uh, if not regularly, frequently. How much of a delay, how much does this delay uh, in the imp implementation of these controls? How much do you think it will, you said it would cause confusion and difficulty. How much do you think it, it will affect the way in which member companies and indeed others prepare Will people just go, I don't think this is ever going to happen? Or do you think they will continue their preparations? 
unfortunately we're we're playing with human nature here and unfortunately there will always be those cynical amongst them that believes that the uk won't be implementing any form of product of animal origin border controls the likelihood of customs controls going is virtually zero i see those coming into play because obviously there is a duty vat uh, taxation uh, reference point that's required to you know prop up the uk government's finances however if we take a closer look at the the border controls that were postponed from the 1st of october to the 1st of january through to the 1st of july i really struggle to see how they will be implemented in such an aggressive manner as was planned i see over the coming sort of three to six months uk government's position softening where less health certificates that are vet issued are being required partly down to a lot of the delays and the extension of this easement is really down to capacity of vets and certifying authorities in eu member states so they're going to have to do something they can't just kick it down the line from a customs broker perspective what makes trade flow is clarity and we do well when there is a volume of business flowing through a border. Actually, Unsworth handles probably between 600 and 800 declarations every day. And ultimately, for that to be successful, we just need things to flow. So from our side, the delays really just create more cost and extra noise. Yes, there will be some easements, but really now is the time just to make sure everyone is ready and understands what's required. And on that point, it's really um, at the shipper side in the EU who you're buying from to really make sure they have understood what the regulations are going to look like because ultimately that's where a lot of the confusion came uh, from running into October. Uh, yes, I think you make an interesting point about the vets because there's no doubt that the absence of vet capacity is a massive problem uh, on this side of the border. Um, and interestingly, on the various calls we do, we do a regular call in which the British Veterinary association participates and it's their constant refrain that they're never consulted they're not bought into the conversation and business uh, ministers make decisions without knowing whether the vets who are available can implement them so i think that is a big problem i want to just turn to a couple of the issues where i think unsworth is very close to the ground and, and will have a, a view on a couple of the major concerns for member companies one is obviously the current driver shortage for HGV drivers. Uh, I mean, you, you pay your money and you take your choice on the figure of, of drivers who are unavailable, but it's certainly in the tens of thousands and may even be as much as 100,000. So it's a, a very significant problem. What, do you see, you see the issue as it, as it pertains to drivers coming in and out of the UK? And particularly, or I'm, particularly, I imagine, to the, the availability and frequency of travel of EU drivers. How big a problem do you think this absence is and how can it be fixed? Um, I, I would say the driver shortage is nothing new. There's no magic wand that will suddenly create a fix here. And this is a systemic problem that has existed for now, I would say, the last four years, but really with Brexit has certainly come to a head. I think part of the problem that people are not really understanding is um, during the uh, pandemic, many drivers were furloughed or had slightly reduced hours. And at the age that they typically were in their 60s, they quite like that sort of lifestyle of easier, shorter runs, home for dinner, home at the weekend, not living away. 
Um, just like you and I are enjoying the um, modern day world of flexible working, drivers are too. Um, it wouldn't go without me saying that the e-commerce boom with Amazon and the amount of sort of three and a half ton vehicles that are now on the road than there were 12 months ago certainly is stifling the new driver feed because the money you can earn with no uh, additional licensing requirement driving for an Amazon or some form of e-commerce retailer or delivery firm is still relatively lucrative versus, you know, HGV driving and the associated downsides of it being the type of shift patterns that it entails. So it's really not creating that conduit of new people. If we then take a further step back, how much do we um, respect HGV drivers? How much do we make it an attractive role and an, a pleasing role for those in the industry to join? And from my side, we've got to start with um, protecting those in the industry that start, you know, better restroom facilities, better, um, you know, toilet areas, better um, service station, better rest areas. If we compare the infrastructure that the UK has available to what's on mainland Europe, I can see why European drivers would not want to come across to the UK to be driving, compounded by um, you know, uh, the EU drivers not coming across is the simple fact that there is not that um, uh, uh, appeal of, of the industry. The short term fixes really have been, you know, let's create sign on bonuses, retention bonuses and pay everyone a bit more. One driver I know really very well seemed to think by his mass that he had got a pay rise of roughly 40% for doing less work. His words, not mine. I couldn't quite work out how he got to those figures, which is staggering in my eyes. All this means in the run up to Christmas, things will get more expensive. There will be more delays. There will be more uncertainty. And at this time of post-pandemic recovery, it's certainly not something I guess us as 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 the freight businesses want to see. I would say last week one of our customers, who's a very large uh, exporter, had nearly 20% of their planned collections fail simply due to a lack of vehicle availability, which in some regards is staggering. I'm talking over a hundred trucks failed to turn up for their contracted load point, which is really quite concerning. Yes, and we're hearing that 20% figure in a number of other places as well, particularly related to deliveries to hospitality. So it, it there's obviously that's obviously the kind of scale of the problem across all settings. And I'm very interested in what you say about the way we treat drivers. I was on a Radio 5 Live phone-in a couple of weeks ago where this part of the subject came up. And almost immediately, we had three drivers phoning in. And their biggest concern was not unreasonably about the toilet facilities, the parking facilities, and the general dignity with which they were treated. And it's hardly a surprise that many of them, therefore, go to work for Amazon or Tesco where they get treated better more wages and it's nicer hours. So that's that's not a surprise, but it's very interesting that that's your experience at the really sharp end. Can we go to the sharp end of one other problem uh, as we come towards the end of our time? What are you seeing in the container world? We hear some really blood-curdling stories about the, about the difficulties of container shipping, about the fact that costs have gone up and containers are very, very scarce and a lot of them have moved and migrated to the other side of the world as, as the Chinese economy sucks them all in. Um, what are you seeing from your vantage point on this? And, and what do you think people in the industry are doing to mitigate the concerns? 
So it, it's well known the fact of shipping from China, if we take it, China to the UK pre-pandemic might have been about $2,000. Probably the true price should have been about $4,000. This week, if you want it to move in, it's roughly $18,500. How sustainable is that? I really can't see it. But unfortunately, shipping has always been a bit supply and demand led. The carriers were always very cheeky, where if there was an oversupply of containers, they would simply park up large vessels to um, falsely increase demand. But actually, in this case, I think nearly 99.7% of vessels are in use, which is a, is a, is a very high figure. And the issue is compounded by the fact that post-pandemic boom and the the requirement for consumer goods in the world. Typically, when one um, area of the world is booming, there is another area not performing quite so well. And But in this case, everywhere is. And what that has simply meant is prices have gone up alarmingly so it you know it's 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 adding on significant extra costs per ton to to ingredients importers who are buying from these nations a number of fdf members have clubbed together with us especially those buying from spices out of india where they might not have been utilizing their containers quite so well and we've started this uh, spice a shared service where they're all buying from very similar supplier bases. They all know what each other's up to, but we're then maximizing the fill of a container to make sure they're not shipping any air like they might have done before, because now air costs, a cubic meter of air to ship from India pretty much costs $400. And so even by removing pallets and other methods to increase load fill, we're really seeing in containers. Where do we see this stepping towards? Unfortunately, you know, the forecasters are very much saying it's really until post-Chinese New Year, March, April next year, that we could expect any form of reset of rate. And a reset might only look like, you know, halving the current rates down to about $7,000. That's still, you know, percentage-wise high. And We've got to remember, you know, UK government are really scared to get involved in this because of the complex nature of world trade. And ultimately, there's very little that one government can do alone. I was expecting the US Federal Maritime Commission, which exists to present to protect US interests and these types of rate spikes to step in. They have yet to do so. So really, I don't hold out a lot of hope for us small island of GB in the whole world trade position. And what we are really seeing our customers doing is sharing uh, container space and only buying for exactly what they need. So we should prepare for, for more of the same over the next few months and not look for any great relief from the market coming back to us. Um, let me turn finally to what we think of the future and, and really to continue that theme of, of what can we expect? What's your best guess of what's going to happen next on Brexit? And in particular, do you think we're going to see any mitigation of the cost of the friction that has been put into the process? Is it going to get worse or are companies just going to have to suck it up and get better at dealing with it? So I think every business we've talked to had this extraordinary 
budget cost budgeted for this year and for some reason they all magically think that all these extra costs they've had to incur will disappear for next year um, the smart ones amongst our customer bases have been working on these process improvement projects to reduce the cost to serve each shipment and so that's by digitalization a smoother process of interacting between the um, the uh, load point the truck the customs broker customs officials and then their customer in the EU and so ultimately the smart ones have been really working on these cost reduction projects. Secondly, will the UK um, be able to agree further trade agreements because that will be the real key um, piece that is of importance to, to the overall trade picture and thirdly in terms of um, uh, reducing their costs and kind of getting 2022 off to a good start it's actually stripping out things that aren't required lots of businesses waste money on transit documents the french have a great method that doesn't need them but not many people know about it and as people's knowledge and experience grow they'll soon realize that their method they created on the 1st of january no longer is fit for purpose come the 1st of october and so from my side it really just requires that level of review most people should be able to make at least a 70% saving on their costs of this year by the fact that things have got easier and the prices have reduced slightly. That's quite a heartening number, actually. And if you put that together with a reasonable number of them behaving in a smart way, you should see a, re a significant increase in the ease and availability of movement uh, in the in the next few months. So that's encouraging. Um Last question for you. How optimistic or pessimistic are you on the outlook for UK trade uh, with the EU? Are you, do you see it as something that is now heading for a steady but reduced state? Do you think it can continue to move back in the direction uh, that it was, but not necessarily attain the position it was before First uh, of January, or are you someone who thinks that the the, the system is, uh, if not broken, significantly damaged? So I'm always a person that's a glass half full. So I'm always forever seeing the best in everything. And my dad always reminds me, if I start to look concerned, we're going to nuclear war. So in terms of my outlook of the next um, period, is that unfortunately the damage to UK businesses has been done. It's very hard for them to recover and get back into those want lucrative markets. And unfortunately, what we are seeing is that they're having to explore other markets wider than the EU to retain a percentage of export market share. Um, I see this trend continuing. And so actually we're getting more inquiries about how we can sell into America food products than now we are getting into how we can sell food products into the Italian as an example. I think I think we'd agree with your outlook that that the EU trade is is something that we're gonna have to work on for a very long time to get anywhere near back to where we were before. But that the world is out there and there's a huge opportunity for our members and for UK business more generally. And uh, and actually, that is the long-term opportunity to which the Brexiters have always referred. 
And it, it's it's not one to belittle. It's a massive opportunity, particularly if we take what you said earlier about China and Asia being real growth markets. Um, I mean, it's no coincidence that they're the ones sucking up the containers because that's where the business is. And how optimistic are you about Unsworth's future and to, to a lesser degree in uh, how about the partnership with the FDF? Is uh, You sound to me like a, the kind of guy who wants to build the business pretty significantly, but also quite rapidly over the next few years. Do you do you do you feel good about that? And do you feel uh, good about the part that FDF members can play in that? Absolutely. And sort of touching on the the earlier point of the Asian tiger markets booming, um, you know, we're certainly seeing a lot of inquiries going to there, New Zealand, Australia, that have really not seen the COVID downturns. In terms of Unworth and the FDF partnership, um, it's only going from strength to strength. It's only just started. And from my side, I see a lot of excitement just around the corner. Um, let me say, I, I, I'm very proud of the fact that the partnership with Unsworth has been established during my term of office. And I'm, I think it's one of our biggest achievements. Um, we've never made some of these commercial partnerships, as opposed to our excellent affiliate members, work terribly well in the past because there hasn't always been a need. But this is one of those circumstances where the need has been the the spur to the partnership. And I'm I'm very excited by it. And I'm particularly excited uh, by the fact that it's Charles on the other side of the table because I can tell listeners that he is one of the most commercial guys I've ever met and also one of the most practical. So so solutions uh, are Unsworth's business very much in in uh, my experience, and I'm really, really excited by the opportunities that the partnership creates. Charles, just before you go, just tell us once again about this um, about this Sharabang to Calais that you've organised and the trip, uh, the trip that members could take to around the Calais port. Absolutely, we make it sound like Del Boys, Jolly Boys, Jolly uh, Jolly outing here. Um, we've organised with the regional government of France, uh, the vets, the customs authorities, and the port of Calais Boulogne um, a unique opportunity to see the inner workings of what could be going wrong with your shipments. To fire your questions directly to the head of these uh, parts of the French government, and ultimately to really give you your members the reassurance that working with Unsworth and our customs brokerage teams there we can answer those questions so I think we've got nearly 50 people uh, signed up to come along and I welcome any other FDF members that could potentially be interested drop us an email and we'll try and get them on the bus. Charles where should they send that email? Uh, ch at unsworth.uk Fabulous. Charles, thank you very much for your time uh, and to everyone listening. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to know more about the Unsworth Partnership, either get in touch with Charles at that email address or with the FDF and we'll let you know uh, how to get in touch. Uh, You've been listening to Passionate About Food and Drink, the FDF podcast. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.